MSW Media. This week, the sentencing of former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort generated controversy. One federal judge, T.S. Ellis, sentenced Manafort to a mere 47 months in prison, a small fraction of the sentence recommended by the federal sentencing guidelines. Manafort's sentence has reignited a broader debate about sentencing law. Was Manafort's race or class a factor in the lenient sentence he received? Was the sentence imposed by Judge Ellis caused by partisan bias? And what does the sentence highlight about the need to reform criminal sentencing? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to say there has been a lot of controversy uh, generated by the Manafort sentence, much more than I expected. Well, and a lot of people are, are sharing, like, you know, this woman tried vote, voting even though she didn't know she was ineligible, and she's serving jail time. And here's somebody, you know, here are all these people who <clears throat> com committed lesser crimes, and they're serving more time. And, and I think that people have this sense of justice. They, especially, I get, you know, when it comes to the scale, the breadth and scope of what he did, uh, people are shocked that it was only 47 months. And, and the recommendations. What were the recommendations again? The federal sentencing guidelines call for a 19 to 24-year sentence. This is a big difference. Big difference between four years and 19 to 24, no doubt. Um, so what I would just say is that there are a lot of sentencing disparities in the federal sentencing system. We're going to talk a lot about it today. I think what we're going to do today is really do an in-depth discussion of federal sentencing law today. Okay, and is I want to know. I wanna well, I think what, what people will be surprised to hear that there are such dramatic disparities between sentences that defendants receive. And it's not just Manafort versus whoever you pick out. It's literally across the board. It's it's such a, an extreme, there's such an extreme difference between judges that uh, clients hire people like me and, and our guests today to, to tell them, okay, we, we got Judge Brown or Judge Jones. What does that mean for my sentence? And it could be dramatically different things depending on what judge they happen to draw randomly. Uh, because judges differs that much, they have such extraordinary discretion. Uh, their their um, sentences are given such deferential review that judges really can uh, do you know what they want to do with sentencing. So you know that is something that has not always been the case in the federal system. It's uh, it's a reform that occurred in our lifetimes, and I think it's worth having a conversation about and talking about the effects of. Because um, if you dig deep into federal sentencing law, and most people are not, they're just going to look at the sentence and draw a conclusion, you'll find that there's a lot of disparities. And the question is, and I think the question for this podcast uh, today is, 
Is that a necessary evil? In other words, the, this is the best system we can come up with, is to have a lot of discretion to individual judges to take into account all the particular factors that a, that a defendant has, and that's going to generate disparities? Or is it the result of a flaw um, in our system? Can we make our system better? Um, we're going to have a lot to discuss, uh, and today uh, I have a great guest to discuss it, a returning guest uh, who I'm excited to have back on, uh, Ken White, who many of you know, if, you, if you're if you on Twitter, you may know him as Pope Hat. Uh, I don't understand the name, never really got it. Uh, He's but on a crusade, maybe? It, no. Maybe, not sure. Okay. Maybe just likes the shape of the hat. Um, but that funny name um, belies a very, very intelligent and careful legal analysis He's a former federal prosecutor uh, from an earlier vintage than me out in California uh, in, a, in a large office in the L.A. office down there. Uh, and since then, he has uh, done a lot of work on the defense side and criminal defense uh, and also doing First Amendment work. He is also the um, the host of a great podcast of his own called All the President's Lawyers. Funny, uh, funny name, uh, a, a clever name. And I uh, had the pleasure of being on a guest there once. Very intelligent discussion as well. Uh, I am going to get uh, Ken on the line right Excellent. now. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you for being uh, on the podcast once again. Well, thank you for having me. You know, it's funny. Just a day ago, we were talking about topics, and there's no question that the sentence of Paul Manafort has pushed everything out of the news, and it's generated a lot of controversy. I think... Uh, both of us uh, feel that uh, some of the quick takes uh, on Manafort's sentence are not quite right. Um, and I think to understand that, you have to understand a little bit more about how federal sentencing law works. Uh, and uh, it's fair to say that that's not something that is commonly discussed uh, in public. No, and for a good reason, too. A sentence like this one is uh, more or less like trying to figure out the tax return for a medium-sized business. <laughs> so uh, there's there's a lot of uh, annoying complexity to it, and most people tune it right out. And so on that exciting note, I, now that you're that excited to hear about it, we are <laughs> Ken and I, <laughs> Ken and I are going to try to snazz and sizzle up federal sentencing law and explain it to you very quickly, at least some of the basics so that we can get to um, an intelligent discussion about the Manafort sentence, because I will just tell everybody that a lot of the stuff that you're seeing where you're, you're hearing these hot takes on Twitter uh, or on um, on cable news where they're like, oh, you know, uh, Manafort's, uh, you know, a white guy. Uh, I don't think that explains all of it. There's certainly racial bias in sentencing. At least that's my view um, that there is racial bias. But I don't think it explains everything uh, that's going on here because I would be very surprised if if Manafort doesn't get hammered by Judge Jackson uh, in her sentencing, uh, and he's the same guy in both cases. But you have a different different judges that may come to different results uh, in those two situations for different reasons. Um, and so it's helpful for us to dig in and really understand this. So um, Ken, you know, is a is a starting point. I think one thing that people may not completely understand is this the the federal sentencing guidelines because. There's a lot of talk uh, that the guidelines for uh, Manafort were 19 to 24 years, and people don't understand why that doesn't translate to a sentence within that range. Um, can you help us understand what the federal sentencing guidelines are? Sure. So uh, in the 70s and 
early 80s, there was a sentiment that uh, the um, judges across America were giving inconsistent and too lenient sentences. And so Congress came up with this idea that they'd create a sentencing commission, and that commission would come up with a set of comprehensive rules that would fix sentences depending on the complexity or, or the seriousness of the crime and the criminal history of the bad guy. So uh, that's where the United States sentencing guidelines come from. The regime starts in roughly 1984, and after that, it very much transformed federal criminal sentencing uh, from something where it really was, you know, the maximum sentence is 10 years, so the judge can give you anything within that, to judges having a very complex set of rules they had to use to come out with uh, a guideline range like that 19 to 24 years that, like I said, is something like filling out a tax return. Now, right now, originally, when the federal sentencing uh, guidelines came out, they were mandatory. And the, the purpose was to have judges constrained then, in this case, for example, to give a sentence within 19 to 24 years, right? Exactly. And so uh, under the regime between about 1984 and about, what, 2005, uh, Judge Ellis would have had to sentence between 19 and 24 years unless he did what was called a departure, which was a finding that was reviewed fairly strictly by the appellate court that there was some set of circumstances not contemplated by the guidelines. Yeah. And so, you know, during that era, era these guidelines were the whole kit and caboodle when it came to sentencing. I mean, sure, Judge Ellis would have had discretion between the 19 and 24 years, but there was a lot of effort put into and a lot of dispute put into these guideline calculations, and they mattered a lot. And and there's been, uh, I think it's fair to say, Ken, that particularly during that period, but even since then, because the guidelines still exist, and we'll, we can talk about that in a moment, there's, I think, a lot, a lot of justified criticism of the guidelines as being incomplete in terms of the factors that they consider. In other words, they consider some factors, uh, but not all factors in generating this number of 19 to 24. Yeah. I mean, it's an artificial system and it's never going to capture the complexity of human life. So everyone always felt uh, that they weren't covered by the guidelines. And when I was a federal prosecutor in the 90s, in the first couple of years of the 2000s of a defense attorney, the real action was in trying to convince a judge that uh, this was a case, unlike any other case, so different, the guidelines didn't contemplate it, and therefore, judge, you can depart downward. Yeah, it's a very different system. And I also imagine, so just so everyone understands the context, that Ken was a federal prosecutor during this era of the mandatory guidelines. I became a federal prosecutor in 2007 as a federal prosecutor from 07 to 16. So I was a federal prosecutor during the advisory guidelines uh, era, the era we're in now, where the guidelines are something that judges are required to look at, but they can completely ignore if they want to. I mean, they can, they can, they can consider it and reject the guidelines if they want to. We'll, we'll get to that change in a moment, but that the, that was a very fundamental shift. So in my era, there were discussions and debates and litigation uh, over the guidelines and what the guideline range should be, but the stakes were lower. I imagine in your era, Ken, th there'd be a pretty big fights about whether a particular uh, enhancement or, or guideline provision would, would apply to a, a particular defendant. 
Well, sure, because once the judge decided that a particular enhancement or reduction applied, then they were bound to it unless they could find the grounds for one of these uh, departures, which are uh, reviewed fairly strictly by the Court of Appeals and harder to do. So the fights were much more bitter over every part of the calculation. So then in 2005, as you alluded to, Ken, there was a decision by the United States Supreme Court called United States versus Booker radically changed uh, federal sentencing law, essentially said that the guidelines uh, needed to be advisory, not mandatory. Um, And as a result of that, judges were back in the position where, for example, to use your example, if the maximum sentence under the law was 10 years, they could sentence anywhere from zero to 10. um, And they could they just were required to look at the guidelines when they um, made their decision. Is that is that a fair way of summing it up? Yeah. And the Supreme Court's decision in Booker came out of a line of cases about the constitutional right to a jury trial. And the starting concept was this. If there is some factor in a sentence where if it applies, um, raises your sentence in a mandatory way, the Supreme Court said, well, that's something a jury has to find. Because if a judge is doing that, that's violating your right to uh, a jury trial. So it started out with like, enhancements where, you know, it's it's a 10-year sentence or plus five if you used a gun. And the Supreme Court said, well, uh, to to honor your right to a jury trial, the jury has to be the one to find that you had a gun, not the judge. And that doctrine slowly expanded until the Supreme Court said, well, these sentencing guidelines as written are mandatory. And therefore, uh, if you want to use them, you'd have to have uh, a jury apply them, which of course would be completely unworkable. Uh, Imagine trying to (laughs) teach a jury how to fill out a tax return. So the Supreme Court said, oh, your choice is then to make them not mandatory, uh, just recommendations, or else they violate that right to a jury trial. Exactly. So that transformed federal sentencing law. And so let's, I want to focus on, on how federal sentencing law works now. And I'd say the advantages and disadvantages of the current approach versus the approach during the mandatory guidelines era. Because I think it's important. I think it helps. Uh, it's going to help all of you understand how we're in some of the situation that we're in. So during the era that I have practiced federal criminal law from t- 2007 to the present, uh, for the most part, I did handle s- some criminal cases before then, but uh, I would say, you know, very few. Um, the um, in this era, the whole uh, focus of the defense, its sentencing is talking to the judge about all of the details and and um, characteristics of who the defendant is, what the defendant did, because the judge can, can, can and is required to, by law, to consider pretty much everything about the person and about the offense uh, under uh, in order to fashion a sentence. And the judge can go anywhere from zero to the maximum sentence, which is usually through the roof, uh, is the potential sentence. So the judge has essentially unlimited discretion. And the result is that judges can are, can now are now basing sentences on very particularized findings about who the person is and their particular um, role in this specific crime and is looking at sometimes you know just looking at comparable sentences and that's very positive and I think for the most part federal judges and um, you know certainly the criminal defense bar but I say also prosecutors many federal prosecutors would agree that that is an improvement. One consequence of that system, though, for better or for worse, is that there are tre- tremendous 
tremendous uh, disparities between sentences given depending on the judge that you draw. There's a lot of data on this point. There were some recent publications that published data um, showing that in, in districts like the one that I practice in in Chicago, there are very, very large disparities in sentences depending on which judge um, is assigned the case. And I think that's something that any uh, federal criminal defense practitioner knows. I mean, would you would you say that's consistent with your experience, Ken? Absolutely. And it was to some extent in the old regime. You just knew it was easier to convince some judges to do departures uh, or to be easier in applying the factors. But now, no doubt, some judges are tougher and some districts are tougher. So USA Today reported yesterday they'd done a data analysis of the Eastern District of Virginia, where Judge Ellis sits and where he sentenced Paul Manafort, and that the average fraud sentence there is 36 months and the average national one is 24 months. So there are disparities both among districts, uh, places in the country, and among judges. Yeah, I mean, in, in I know in, for example, in in Chicago where I'm at, there are certain types of sentences that tend to get um, lower, uh, or excuse me, certain types of offenses that get lower sentences than others, uh, and certain uh, judges, are, you know, are much more. Uh, uh, strict about, uh, you know, how they would impose a sentence. They'll impose higher sentences than others. And it, it, clients hire me and, the, and people like you, I imagine, in California as well, to uh, interpret that, say, okay, we, we drew Judge Brown or Jones or whoever, and this is how she tends to sentence, and this is what this means for you. Um, and, you know, those particularized factors matter a lot. And I guess, you know, one overarching question that I, I think we, we, it would be useful for us to explore today, Ken, is, is that the necessary evil, um, or not evil, but it's a necessary consequence, I should say, to having a system in which you give judges that kind of discretion, or are there ways to curb um, some of the disparities in a manner that would be both constitutional and that also would not create um, fairness problems of, of their own? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I I never met a federal judge who liked the sentencing guidelines, uh, and most of them complained about them bitterly, just as they tend to complain about mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, they felt that the right of a judge, the ability of a judge to frame their own sentence is kind of inherent in the nature of a judge. So that's partially, I think, a judicial ego thing, but it's also something about uh, perhaps uh, the nature of being a judge. I don't know that we're capable as humans of coming up with a system that balances this perfectly. I think you're always either going to have disparity or you're going to have the shackles of a too restricted system that doesn't apply well uh, to every situation. You know, it's always going to be the Procrustean bed or it's going to be uh, the huge disparity. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think you. I think generally speaking, I agree with you. But I wonder, Ken, if if part of the issue here is how we've made uh, uh, sentences fairly unreviewable. And what I mean by that is, you know, on appeal, the, the uh, appellate courts are very deferential in reviewing sentences. There are times when sentences get reversed. I I know, for example, that here in Chicago, there was a famous case where a uh, an alderman had a well-known alderman had. Uh, engaged in a corruption and had gotten a sentence of probation, and that was appealed by the government and, and overturned, and the judge gave him a prison sentence as a result. Um, but it, it's pretty rare. The cases where, for example, on the government side, uh, there could be an appeal are pretty rare. Um, and on the defense side, there are certainly 
um, you're, there's more success on appeal. But even there, for example, a guideline sentence is presumptively reasonable, at least in, in this part of the country. I imagine it's the same uh, in, in other in other uh, uh, circuits as well and other areas of, uh, of the country. And so as a result, um, you know, it's often the case that the the reasons given by judges and the way in which that they they um, um, admit you know uh, pronounce and administer these sentences often uh, aren't reviewed as carefully as they could be. Absolutely, and the other important point is how recent of an innovation that is. So you know Booker is just two thousand five, and it took a few years for the various circuit court of appeals and the Supreme Court to work out what the standard of review would be. That is, how hard the court of appeals would look at any given sentence and what rule it would apply to see whether or not it was reasonable before they finally settled on this rather lenient one. So the situation we're in now uh, with that level of freedom has only been around for 10 years at most. And I don't think really everyone has completely figured it out yet. 10 years in court time is really not that long. It's common for federal, uh, for United States district court judges to sit for, you know, half a century. So um, it, uh, it doesn't surprise me that we're still figuring this out and we're still being surprised. Yeah, I think that... Sorry, I have to say that Renato was looking at me like, are you okay? I'm like, 10 years, 50 it's just sort of, you know inconceivable to us when we're looking at something like this to think it could take 10 more years to follow through on a process of sentencing. Well, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what Ken's remarking about though is, you know, for, for we, appeal or for, well, no, 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 not that. But what, what Ken's talking about is the development of the law. In right. other words, we've been a country for 200 plus years. We've had, you know, various amendments and, you know, the constitution has been in place for a long time. The way that federal sentencing worked you know, prior to 1984, you're talking about the development of decades and, and century plus. Okay. Then from 1984 to 2005, okay, there's, you know, quite a bit of time there. Now we're talking about a regime that's essentially been in place for, you know, 14 years. It takes time for the law to evolve the, and develop. In the scope of, of mm -hmm. the history of the law, this is actually smaller. It's kind of like in the history of the world that we're just flex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And, and judges like Judge Ellis probably still have their head to some extent in the old regime. So I think you'll, in my experience, judges who started out under the sentencing guidelines being mandatory still tend to retain a little more deferential attitude towards the guidelines. They still tend to start out more firmly with that as their heartland of where the sentence starts, as opposed to new judges who have never had them as mandatory. Yeah, I think... Rip yeah, I'm sorry, Ken. Renato, I think the other thing that's going on, in addition to this relatively recent change in how sentencing works and the, the degree of district judges' freedom, is how you know, historically recent uh, it is that this is a huge issue for a lot of people. So mm -hmm. for most of the history of America, there wasn't a ton of federal criminal law. And most of the action was with the states. There were relatively limited federal prosecutions. It's only really with the uh, advent of the war on drugs and that sort of thing, starting roughly in the Nixon area, where we started really federalizing much more of criminal law and the federal courts and U.S. attorney's offices got bigger and bigger. So now uh, the whole system on the federal side is vastly larger than it was just half a century. Ago. I think that's a very interesting and, and an important point as well. I think that's something that um, is not often thought about here. And, and there's a lot of debate over that. I would say, for example, 
you know, there's kind of a whole strain of thought amongst libertarian uh, uh, thinkers in the law who have the view that we should roll back federal criminal law. They view federal criminal um, uh, prosecutors as having too much power and too much discretion and so forth. So I think that's an important, I think that's an important data point. Another thing that I think is fairly obvious to you and I, but I don't think uh, a lot of listeners may be thinking about is that, and it's related to that, Ken, is that the vast majority of criminal prosecutions are state criminal prosecutions. Most crimes that you think about when you watch a crime show are state crimes, murder, rape. Uh, th those are state crimes generally. They can be federal in certain circumstances, but usually state crimes. And so, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, where there's been a lot of comparisons drawn about how so-and-so got this sentence for this crime or, you know, a person gets this uh, amount of a sentence for, for marijuana or cocaine, that there are certainly our federal drug laws, but a lot of these prosecutions are on the state side where the system is very different um, and, uh, you know, sometimes doesn't give the judge the full measure of discretion that the federal system does. Absolutely. And the other factor that, that makes a big difference there is that uh, federal sentencing is much more determinate, meaning the sentence the judge imposes is much closer to the time the person actually spends in jail. So uh, in recent years, people spend 85 percent at least uh, of the time in custody. You can get up to 15% for good time. Now, there's a brand new law that passed, a criminal justice reform that I understand is going to make some changes to that and allow more good time credit and other ways to reduce sentences. Uh, but basically, when someone tells you they get a 10-year federal sentence, you have a better sense of what that actually means. Whereas state to state, uh, it differs wildly whether a 10-year sentence means that you spend nine years or four years or what. You really have no idea. Yeah. I mean, to give uh, listeners a sense, in Illinois, typically the rule was that, that a person would serve half the amount of time that they were sentenced to. So in the state, if you had a state conviction that you got a 10-year sentence for, you'd serve five years. Whereas federally, you'd serve eight and a half. Uh, it would be closer to the ten-year mark. So, um, I, what, what I what I am trying to get across to everyone, and I want everyone to understand, as me and Ken now discuss the Manafort sentence, is the context that we're approaching this from. In other words, you know, from my perspective, Ken, I'll, I'll lay out some of my views to start with. I think a lot of what happened here is that this is the result of giving judges unfettered discretion. And also making it very difficult to review sentences. It allows someone like Ellis to kind of declare that he wants the sentence to be whatever he wants it to be, um, fairly unmoored from a lot of the facts of the case. Um, and, you know, he knows that it's not going to get reversed by the Court of Appeals, and he knows that um, he has the discretion to do so. And so essentially, Paul Manafort got fortunate because he had Judge Ellis as his judge versus some other judge in that building. Um, now, to be fair, that's that's a sentence. You know, you you mentioned the statistics. Uh, it, to be clear, that everyone should understand that that typically, uh, for better or for worse, and I think for worse in some cases, I think it's due to a bias that judges have that of having defendants who who look and sound a lot like them being the people who are being sentenced. I think that. Uh, that there's a lot of very, very uh, significant depart. Uh, there's a, the the sentences I should say are much lower than the guideline range in white collar cases. Even though I do represent white collar defendants now, I think that they are much. The departures there are very significant compared to on the the drug side. 
uh, of things and other and other types of uh, of offenses. But I would say that um, here, given a lot of the the aggravating and egregious factors for Manafort, I am surprised that that it was so far below the guidelines. It, it's much less than I predicted, and I just, I think that you than you predicted as well. Yeah, I think surprised is the right word. Surprised, but not shocked, if I can draw that distinction. Um, so it's it's unusual, but not shockingly unusual. I, I predicted uh, that Ellis was going to give him 10 years and that the Judge Jackson, when she sentences him on the D.C. case, would give him another 10, half of it concurrent so that he'd spend 15. I think we may still wind up at that end point because I suspect Judge Jackson is going to be harsher now in the D.C. Uh, sentence because he got such a light sentence in Virginia. And so he may, she may tack on another 10 years to him and that's close to 15. Uh, but yes, this was uh, a massive departure from the guideline range. And typically uh, the 19 to 24 year range for a white collar crime is extremely unusual. And it's very unusual for white collar cases to wind up with uh, sentences above the say five to eight year range. So I think one thing that kind of works in uh, the favor of people like Paul Manafort is that judges are accustomed to sentencing white collar defendants in a particular range. And so they keep sentencing defendants in that range. And in fact, there's even a, there's even a statutory factor they're supposed to consider about does this sentence, uh, is it, uh, does it avoid disparities with similar cases? So it's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle uh, that the more people get sentenced like that, the more people will continue to get sentenced like that. I think that's a very interesting point. You know, just so everyone understands, you might be sitting at home asking yourself, why is it that Paul Manafort's guideline range is so much higher than a typical federal white collar uh, uh, guideline range? And part of that is he went to trial and challenged the government instead of pleading guilty. Um, he also, in the D.C. case, I will say another aggravating factor that's not present, although I don't think it was factored into the guidelines, is, you know, that he didn't follow his bond conditions and try to tamper with witnesses and so forth. It's not part of this case, but it's worth noting. Another thing I would say is he also just, the, the loss amount, the amount of money involved was very significant. So there, there's a number of factors, I think, that may have driven that. I haven't really sat down recently with the guidelines uh, and looked over it, but those are some that come to mind. But I will just say, Ken, you know, you said surprised but not shocked. I want to tell you, I, that's very, very apt. I did not, I purposely did not put out a number uh, for Manafort. And the reason why in my case that I didn't do that is I was kind of thinking about a number like yours, but I mm -hmm. thought when I heard Ellis's comments throughout the trial, I thought that there was some chance that this guy just thought the whole thing was a bunch of malarkey and could have gone low. And I understand that you know, we may have a difference of a view on that, but from my perspective, judges often let their just bias about a case in fact impact sentencing for better or for worse. And I think that, you know, my sense was from the beginning uh, Ellis thought that Manafort was being uh, treated too harshly. And as a result, I thought that that could have impacted his sentence. And I think it did. 
I think that's uh, reasonable to suspect. And I want to draw a distinction there, and I think you're drawing it, between uh, like the sort of bias we're seeing in the hot takes on Twitter where, oh, you know, Judge Ellis is in the tank for Trump or he hates uh, Robert Mueller or something like that. I don't think that's the type exactly of bias that it is. Judges just don't like some cases. They think that if they were running the case, they would do it differently. And I'm sure you had it happen to you and I had it happen to me. Uh, Every prosecutor's had a judge tell them how they ought to be doing the case. Uh, And you stand there and smile and nod politely and say, yes, your honor. So judges tend to have strong feelings about the fairness or proportionality of all types of cases. And I don't think it necessarily shows political uh, bias as much as it shows just sort of a judicial attitude that tends to harden the longer they've been wearing the black robe, that they have a good gut, that their gut tells them how serious something like this is, and that uh, if the government disagrees, well, you know, they're going to find out about it. Now, I, I, uh, I, so with all of that, I want to address something that both comes up in the uh, in the Twitter feed that uh, Renato put out the questions. You know, what do you what do you want to know? You know, a lot of people are looking at this piece in the Washington Post that the senior that uh, Judge Ellis was nominated to the bench in '87 by Reagan, who favored conservative picks, and before then he had worked <clears throat> since 1970 for Hunt and Williams, a very well known conservative Richmond firm, and had done a lot of conservative political work before that. So whether or not that was an influence and, and whether or not it was his gut, the, then to that, with all the judicial appointments the Republican Senate is racing to complete, people are wondering whether the lifetime appointment of federal judges really is constitutionally mandated or could it be modified or circumvented by legislation? Because it sounds as though it, they may be, the conservatives are putting in a lot of people whose gut might be going in a direction a lot of others might not appreciate. Well, I'll, I'll start with the second. I'm See, I, one one advantage of being the host is I'm going to answer the easy question on the second <laughs> one. <laughs> the second one is there's no chance, okay? Constitution None. says that the federal judges have lifetime appointment. There's good reasons behind that. Um, because you want to have judges to be completely independent, not thinking about their next job, uh, you know, leaving to become whatever, uh, yeah. a, a lawyer or, you know, something like that. Uh, but uh, aside from that, it doesn't matter because the bottom line is that's what the Constitution says and it's very hard to amend. Uh, as of the first point, I mean, I, I, I you know, I'll, I, I'll let Ken answer that separately. I guess what I would just say uh, on, the, on the first point is, I one way in which I maybe differ from your views, Ken, just because Ken, I think Ken was approaching this point a moment ago, is I do think that some of the comments that Ellis made kind of revealed that he was concerned about how this was from a partisan perspective. I mean, him, you know, for instance, what what's the purpose in in sentencing for saying this didn't have anything to do with you know Russian collusion or whatever? I to me that had nothing to do with uh, with anything to do with that sentencing. I mean, it, it would be one thing if he noted that, you know, he was not going to take into account the countries he was dealing with or something like that. But it, it it showed to me that he was aware of a narrative that was out there and he was in some way trying to push back against that. And it struck to me, it struck me as an improper uh, consideration for him to have. You know, I don't know whether it was a consideration or justification, so I don't want to mix up cause and effect. So like the comment that uh, Manafort had led a blameless life, which I think is just uh, just amazingly ridiculous, 
um, I, I took a lot of those comments as sort of uh, that Judge Ellis had decided what the range was going to be. And then he said things that justified his decision as opposed to, you know, he, he reached his decision based on these precepts. I think that's the way most people tend to make decisions uh, is to make them and then come up with things to justify them. Uh, and I don't think judges are particularly different. So, I, I mean, yes, he was he was. Uh, mouthy about the case, but you know, I, I in in my career, I've had judges who were uh, had all sorts of opinions about cases um, of all sorts that did not meet any sort of political criteria, and uh, that often didn't translate. And here, I mean, he denied the motion to dismiss. He presided over a trial that resulted uh, in multiple federal felony convictions, and he ultimately sentenced him to uh, as lower than the guidelines it is, is still a significant chunk in federal prison. So I'm not as sold on the notion that this is uh, really about overt political bias. And you just mentioned uh, that the judge said that, you know, he'd lived he'd lived a, a blameless life, which I think a lot of people are like, excuse me. But he also the judge also mentioned that he'd been a good friend and a generous person. Uh, you know, a lot of people are asking, you know, well, that was that generosity, you know, from the legitimate money or from all the millions that he made and not paying taxes? And how can the judge use that as a reference for giving a more lenient sentencing? Well, I mean, the the good friend, generous person pops up in nearly every sentence, particularly nearly every white collar sentence. Um, and Renato, I'm sure your experience is the same. You're always trying to humanize your client to the judge and you're trying to get people who will tell humanizing stories, not just generic. He's a good guy, but you want people to tell the true stories of, you know, the time that, uh, you know, I was out of work and he helped us make the rent or, you know, the time I, my wife was sick and he sat with me at the hospital all night or something like that, that shows them to be a person capable of things other than these bad things the judge is looking at. So people are kind of outraged by it because they take it out of context. And the context is you're always trying to humanize uh, a defendant like that. And yes, you have to be very careful in financial cases not to humanize them in the way that flags that that all the money they have may have been ill-gotten. So, yeah, I I think that there's, a two, I think, an important distinction to make here, and, and you're touching on that a little bit, Ken. First of all, I think it is important and it's a good thing for our system that judges have an opportunity to hear from a defense attorney who's going to help them see the humanity in the person that they're sentencing. In, in other words, people do commit crimes. They deserve to be, um, you know, punished for those crimes. And that's, you know, we have a system that does that. But it's also obviously the case that judges are considering the, this person and they are impacting and shaping that person's life. And the judge needs to see that person not as a number or as a kind of a, 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 a you know, a, a, a part of the assembly line of cases that they have, but as a human being who. Um, has complexity and has good as well as bad and their shades of gray uh, and, you know, has a family and friends and has a life that will be impacted. That does not mean that the judge is not going to give a person a serious sentence or just punishment, but it means that that is something the judge should see. And there's no question that that is the case. I will say that I do believe, um, and I've, I've believed it uh, in, a, on bo in both of the roles that I've had, both on the prosecution and the defense side, that at times, you know, one, one advantage that white-collar defendants have 
is they have many more opportunities to be uh, generating the sort of things that will be play well at sentencing. You know, you can imagine white, there's all these white collar defendants uh, who've donated time to charity and they go to church and they, you know, uh, do things in their community because they have the means to do that. Sometimes these things overlap with their own potential business or civic goals that they have for themselves. So, you know, the high, you know, it's, it's possible for them to highlight those things where somebody struggling to make ends meet uh, does not, or somebody who came from a less privileged background does not. So I think, you know, that is, there is some, there is definitely something to um, racial and class bias in sentencing, in my opinion. I don't think that that really tells us anything that significant about Manafort here. In other words, I think Manafort, a lot of judges would have uh, launched Manafort. I think Judge Jackson is one of them. And I think, right. yeah, but I think that, uh, I think that it certainly is worth noting. I will say, Ken, I do slightly differ from you, though, on the partisan um, thing with 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 Jackson in this sense. I mean, I think that I agree. I defended, uh, excuse me, Ellis. I defended Ellis throughout the trial. I wrote a bunch of threads analyzing the Manafort trial at the time, defending Ellis's decisions to to constantly tell the prosecutors to hurry up, uh, which I thought was a mark of an experienced trial judge. I thought him having firm control of the courtroom actually was a helped the prosecution generally, not the defense. So I defended him a lot, but during the trial, he did make some comments that I couldn't defend, uh, and obviously, it's sentencing me comments that neither you or I are defending either. Uh, I do think, from my perspective, that there's clearly something going on in the soup of his head. Uh, of the thoughts in his head that that was uh, partisan. I think he had, whether he watched Fox News or he was getting some other sort of input in there that, you know, he was getting some uh, talking points that I thought had nothing to do really with the case. And I thought, you know, he had a lack of precision and care that he took in uttering those comments, which is not unusual. A lot of judges say all sorts of uh, uh, unfortunate things on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> but I think that the way I view it is, you know, you were talking about cause and effect. I don't even know if I would like categorize it that neatly. I think judges have all sorts of thoughts in their heads and they generate things, results come out of that, that soup. And so whatever the soup was in there included <laughs> this stuff. And here we got this, this kind of uh, bizarre result. That's sort of the way I look at it. I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with you on that last part because I think uh, judges, precisely because of the amount of power they have and how often unreviewable it is and how seldom it gets reviewed, don't tend to have the same filters as the rest of us and tend to weaken their filters over the years. And so uh, I think a judge as uh, experienced as Judge Ellis, and some of them I've observed, will tend to just sort of say things that are more emotive than factual, uh, kind of remind me of President Trump in that way, uh, making statements that if you were going to be mean and subject them to uh, a rigid uh, truth analysis might fall short, but uh, sort of indicate a direction the judge is feeling. And I think the uh, blameless life is a perfect example of that. I, I mean, if, if taken literally, it's obviously completely stupid. Uh, I think it's ill-considered under any circumstances, but it's clearly more just sort of a emotive expression of what uh, Judge 
Ellis was feeling. I hear you, what you think about bias. I'm not ruling it out. I can't say that the man is not, uh, you know, a secret Fox News watcher or doesn't have these secret views. I would only observe that he's been known for departing substantially below the guidelines in a lot of different cases, not often this low, but low. Um, and that many judges, in my experience, will just talk trash about your case if they don't like it. You know, I one of my earliest cases, uh, a bank robbery, the judge just absolutely hated, and he just constantly undermined me in front of the jury and interrupted me during my cross-examination of the defendant because he hated the case. Uh, he didn't like bank robberies. He wasn't pro-bank robber. He just thought the case was a terrible use of resources and unfair. Uh, and in my experience, judges will be like that. So does that mean Judge Ellis is free of bias? No, I don't know. I, I'm just not – clear that he is based on the evidence I've seen. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair and reasonable uh, and considered view, Ken. I, I don't I don't think that we can ever know uh, one way or the other. I will say I agree with you that I certainly have had cases when I was a federal prosecutor that judges didn't like. I had a, I had a, a white collar defendant who was much more well off than than Mr. Manafort, at least I believe, was more well off uh, than, than Mr. Manafort get days in prison for what I thought was a significant crime. So um, it's certainly uh, not unprecedented for someone to get a very substantial um, departure downwards uh, from, a, from a federal judge. I think that there's something uh, going on there, given his comments, but I think your, your view is also uh, possible. I think what I want listeners to, to be able to glean from this is, regardless of whether you're more persuaded by Ken's view or mine, that there's a lot of complexity here. And I do think, you know, one thing you mentioned again was how unreviewable this was. To me, that has a lot to do with this. In other words, if 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 Judge Ellis knew that the Court of Appeals was going to be carefully scrutinizing this transcript, there was going to be this heavy uh, you know, there's going to be this very contentious appeal over what the right sentence should be, and it was going to be very carefully scrutinized. He might have put more effort into uh, and, and into making sure his remarks were precise and supported, um, and generating a record that would stand up on appeal. I mean, maybe not. I don't know Judge Ellis in practice in front of him, but you you could imagine that it did so. In part, I think the legal regime that we have that that makes those sentences hard to review in the appellate level generates. Uh, these results by giving judges such uh, unfettered discretion. I think you're completely right on that. I think that this encourages kind of inherent judicial behavior. Renato, could we talk for a second about the guidelines, just because I think we've kind of circled around them and we've told the listeners to what extent they are mandatory or not. But I, I suspect most people don't have any idea how they work. Can we give a thumbnail of that? Yeah, I think that's helpful. So the heart of the guidelines is a chart. Uh, that every prosecutor or defense attorney knows by heart. It's a, a page, and on the top of the page, it has uh, categories one through six. And those are how bad of a criminal record your defendant has, from no record all the way up to, in effect, a career criminal. And down the side of the page on the left hand, it has offense levels, which are a numeric representation of how serious the crime is, uh, from one up to whatever the maximum is now, I think it's 42. 
So uh, what you do when you sentence someone is you come up with their criminal history level up top and you come up with their offense level and you cross index those on the chart and you come up with a range of months like, you know, the equivalent of 19 years to 24 years. Most of the action in sentencing guidelines application, as you would expect, is in figuring out what is that offense level? How serious is that crime? And to do that, you have to go through a Byzantine series of formulas and calculations, and there's arguments over each step of the process. So first you have to say, okay, so this is a bank robbery. Well, what guideline applies? That's easy, the bank robbery guideline. And how many enhancements are there? Well, did he use a gun? Uh, how much money was taken? Was anyone threatened? And you use all the different factors that apply. Um, generally, the further away it goes from drugs or guns, the more complicated it gets. So when you have a case like this where there is – there are multiple crimes, different crimes that use different guidelines and have different measures of harm and have different sentencing factors and you have to come up with a separate guideline for each one and then shove all those together into one number, it is just ludicrously complicated. And that's how you have you know dozens and dozens of pages of sentencing briefs and hours-long sentencing hearings. So that's what I mean when I say say it's like filling out a tax return. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful com uh, context that, you know, I think everyone listening now realizes that they'd never want to calculate the guidelines themselves. <laughs> no, it's uh, there's a reason, uh, you know, Ken and I probably don't enjoy digging out our guidelines books. And sometimes we have to figure out complicated things like, you know, as you pointed out, combining the um, the uh, various types of crimes into one uh, big, uh, you know, essentially one big sentencing guideline for the entire uh, set of crimes that have been uh, committed in the case. It's complicated. It's the system now uh, makes it less important, but it's still there. It definitely influences judges, as you, you suggested, Ken, because they look at that as a starting point. Um, although clearly, Judge Ellis does not uh, do that, in, or did not do that as much in this case as, as other judges might. Um, but I think, um, you know, what I think this is helpful uh, for folks to see is, you know, we can debate um, what the right sentence would be. I think my perspective is that it should have been significantly higher here. Um, but when we talk about reform and how to reform this system, if there, if there, if folks believe that there is a need for reform, and I am certainly one of those, it's not clear to me um, how that would work in, in, in would it, in how it might change the result for uh, a person like Mr. Manafort. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, Ken. Well, I'm not as interested in getting Manafort's sentence higher as I am in getting other people's sentences lower and there being less disparity between uh, somebody who does a drug crime and someone who does something like Manafort. Um, Judge Ellis somewhat famously complained about the mandatory minimum sentences when he had to sentence a meth dealer to 40 years in federal prison, mandatory minimum. And I don't think by any stretch of the imagination can a rational society say that that guy was 10 times worse than uh, Paul Manafort at four years. So uh, the way I would go at it is kind of from the other direction. I would more broadly question and criticize uh, the long sentences we give and whether they really do what we want them to do. I also think that a large part of it is, uh, and this is one on which we may conflict, about prosecutorial discretion. So 
when we tell you that Manafort was facing a 19 to 24 uh, year sentencing range, it's not as if that number just existed out in the state of nature waiting to be discovered naturally based on what he did. That number is largely driven by what crimes the special counsel's office chooses to prosecute and how they choose to prosecute them and what facts they choose to bring to light and tell to the probation office and the judge. There's a concept called relevant conduct under which even if you're not charged with a particular loss, it might be uh, part of your sentence if it's related to the case. And prosecutors have gigantic discretion to drive that guideline range by what they choose to charge and what they choose to raise as a relevant conduct. So I would look at reducing prosecutorial power at that part of the stage. So first of all, we do agree as to how to approach this in terms of bringing, I think the focus needs to be on bringing sentences down. I mean, we agree with that, having less incarceration overall. And I do believe that there is, as I've mentioned multiple times, a, a, a bias um, towards, I think that the favors uh, more well-to-do defendants. And I think that we need to be looking at the types of crimes that are committed by people who don't have the resources to afford people like you or me uh, to very uh, vigorously um, challenge, you know, federal prosecutors, for example. I will say as to prosecutorial discretion, I agree with you that that's something that deserves some real attention and I think we need and reform. But I will say that at least on paper, um, the Mueller's team was required to, to charge, I think, readily approve the readily approvable, the readily provable offenses that they had, or at least make the judge aware of all of the relevant conduct that they had in I don't think they would have been able to, or be justified in, um, withholding crimes that they knew Manafort had committed from the judge. Do you, do you disagree with that? I agree with you that there's a general rule that they're supposed to charge the most serious chargeable offense. They're generally supposed to offer pre- pleas to the most serious offense and generally supposed to bring all the facts forward. I think it's a rule more honored in the breach than the observance, though. Uh, in my experience, there's generally a lot of flexibility in terms of how the government will evaluate cases uh, when they want to come to a particular end. So, you know, if they if they portray something as something they investigated but didn't come to a reliable conclusion on, it's no longer going to be something seen as relevant conduct because if they don't, you know, if they don't play it up to the probation office and the judge, it's not like they're going to do independent investigation and uh, develop it themselves. So uh, I, I think practically speaking, that that uh, the rule that they're supposed to go after the most serious stuff uh, in reality does not really deter them from exercising substantial power. Yeah, it's, inter- it's interesting. I, 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 not, I don't entirely agree with that. I think there's something to what you're saying. I think we just differ in matter of degree. In other words, you know, in my former office, I remember being there for many discussions where we said, well, we have to let the judge know about X, Y, or Z, even though we would rather not in order to achieve some result, like we needed to come up with a deal for this person. But unfortunately, once we let the probation office know about this, there's no way we could come up with a deal that might save the office a lot of resources and, you know, prevent a trial that we didn't think was necessary. But we unfortunately had to tell the judge, or there was other times where I remember us 
feeling like we were constrained by that, but maybe we were more pedantic about interpreting those rules than some. But I will say that even there, even in the, the world that I have seen, in my experience, uh, there is more flexibility than one might think. Um, and I think that's an area that, that could and should be examined. And I think prosecutorial discretion is something that has not, isn't, does not deserve enough scrutiny. So I think that's just a, a difference in, in degree. But one thing that, to tie this into something that, uh, a topic that I do get asked about a lot, and I've seen more misinformation getting out there on, I think you will probably agree with me on this. There, include, there are still people, including some people who call themselves, dub themselves as legal analysts, who are former federal prosecutors, saying that, don't worry, um, Manafort is going to be indicted soon for conspiracy, and I know for the, some grand conspiracy, and they, they know that that is going to happen, or they believe that's going to happen for some reason, and that Manafort, uh, the, 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 that uh, Mueller did not have to tell the judge about this conduct, and it's going to be coming down the pike soon. I have seen no evidence to suggest that's the case, and I suspect neither of you. I have not, but I feel it's only fair that I disclose that many of the same people think I will be indicted for RICO as part of a vast okay. national conspiracy. So maybe I'm a little biased, uh, but yeah, the, the the level of utterly silly wish fulfillment, uh, you know, a friend of mine calls it live action role playing, uh, <laughs> just silliness over this type of thing. It's, it's just wall to wall. Uh, and it's very hard, I think, to separate out the good, uh, uh, the good uh, commentary from the stuff that people are willing to utter because it gets them on TV. Uh, I see absolutely nothing suggesting that a giant, much more serious uh, set of charges is coming down from Manafort. And frankly, I think his real concern is what's going to happen to him in front of Judge Jackson uh, in just a few days and what kind of sentence he'll wind up with. Because, you know, a 15-year sentence is no small thing for a 70-year-old man. And is that the, the what, are, what are the sentencing guidelines for that hearing? So the, the, the maximum sentence under law that she can give is 10 years, 120 months. And the sentencing guidelines are much higher than that, but they're irrelevant because essentially the sentencing guideline range is 120 months. That's the maximum sentence she can give. That is what the sentencing guidelines are. She would note, I, I suspect, and consider the fact that the sentencing guidelines call for a much higher sentence, and she could use that to justify a 120-month sentence or justify running the sentence concurrent, to, or excuse me, consecutive, in other words, to run after the, the sentence that uh, Judge Ellis imposed, because that is within her discretion, whether to have some or all of it run consecutive. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but essentially, it, it doesn't even really matter here. The question is, you know, does she does she give 10 years or something below that? Right. It all comes down to whether the marginal effect on uh, Manafort's sentence is, you know, no more time or up to 10 years more time. And she can go anywhere in that range. Well, Ken, I got to tell you, I, I admire your commentary so much. And, you know, we talked a moment ago about some silly things that people say to get on television. I, I have you know, tried to speak out more about that lately as I've had more uh, people come to me with disinformation. And one thing I will, I can always say is I've never seen you say anything uh, that is not very much grounded in the facts and the law. And I have tremendous respect uh, for the analysis that you put forward. And, and thank you for bringing some of that um, great analysis to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, 
Well, thank you, Renato. And I, that means a lot to me coming from you because I think you're one of the most accurate and reliable voices about all these matters going on. And I'm constantly impressed by the volume you're able to put out and how many of these things you're able to offer quality commentary on. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 